0: I want to begin by asking you, if you were here last week, what is our mission? If, if you had to summarize our mission in three words, what would the three words be? Number one, go. Number two, baptize. baptize. Number three, teach. teach. I love that. It's not complicated. Go, baptize, teach. Go, baptize, teach. And that comes out of Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. We call that the Great Commission. That's the mission that Jesus gave to His church All authority in heaven and on earth, says Jesus, has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Find unbelievers and make them into believers, not in your own strength, but as you go and proclaim the gospel, the Holy Spirit will enable you to make believers. And then baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Yes, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. That's our mission. That's why we exist as a church. Which brings us to this morning, how are we going to fulfill our mission? And I know the seeds of the answer of that question are in the Great Commission themselves. We have to go, we have to baptize, we have to teach. But is there anything else that we do? Anything else that the Bible says, if we are going to be successful in our going... Successful in our baptizing. Successful in our teaching. What else do we need to do? We need a life context within which we will do our teaching. So we go on mission for Christ. We go and we proclaim the gospel by example and with words. And we persuade people trusting that the Holy Spirit will bring some into fellowship with Him through Jesus Christ. But as we're going and proclaiming and trusting that some will be baptized, we have to also know that as we are proclaiming, we are calling them to something. We have something going on here that we want other people to be a part of. That's the life context within which we do our teaching. We are not a school. We are a church. We're we're not just a bunch of... uh, uh, teachers who do an information dump. This is not the kind of teaching that you can just get online. We're a church. What is the life context to the teaching that Christ calls us to in his mission that he has given to the church? We need to, be, we need to have something and be part of something that we can call people into. That's what this morning is going to be all about. This is what we're going to look at. We are calling people to join our church in motion. As we do what God has called us to do, We are asking people, we are inviting people, we are calling people, we are pleading with people to come and join us. Come and be a part of what we are doing. Come and be a part of who we are, the local church under Christ. Would you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2? I'm going to read for you verses 42 through 47. Acts 42 verses 42 to 47 would you please stand? This is the word of God. Acts 2:42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders And many signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. And they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings. And they were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes... They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. The Word of God. Let's pray. Oh God, we want to be a church in motion that conforms ourselves to the commands of Christ, to the likeness of Christ. We want to be and to do the things that he wants us to be and to do. I love this church. I know that you love this church. I pray that you would continue to build us up, continue to energize us by your grace through the Holy Spirit to be and to do the things that you've called us to be and to do We'll never get there perfectly, but I pray that we would grow in godliness. I pray that we would grow in our desire for Christ. I I pray that we would grow in our witness in this city, in this country, and all around the world. I pray that you would do marvelous works in and through us. That we would look at one another and we would say, this cannot be from, from my strength, from our strength. And each of us would say, this is not me, this is God at work in us show yourself show yourself to us and show yourself through us to this city and show yourself through us to this world do things that we haven't even thought to ask you for glorify yourself and exalt the name of jesus christ here and from here in this city in this country And in our world. Oh God help us. We want our lives to count. We want to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And at the end of our days when we are face to face. With the one who redeemed us by the blood of his cross. We long to hear the words well done. Good and faithful servant. Help us God every day between this day and that to be active for the cause of Christ. I pray this in His name. Amen. Please be seated. So what does our church look like when it's in motion? When all the parts are working the way they should, what does it look like? Well, I think we could answer that in a number of ways. You could come and be a part of us for a time and get a sense for for what we're doing. There's a lot of things that we can't document on paper, but, but we do have a ministry structure that we're trying to fill and animate by God's grace where everyone is working so that we as one body under Christ are a healthy body. We're working. We're doing the work of the ministry. Our ministry structure if you notice, is, has Jesus Christ as the head. Everything flows from him. Uh, our marching orders come from him, but also the power to execute the things that he wants us to do comes from him. And he has called elders to be his under-shepherds. He's the good shepherd, and we shepherd under him, and our shepherding is only legitimate if our shepherding mirrors his shepherding. And so we are constrained by the word of God, as the Holy Spirit reveals it to us. And so our job is to mediate the Word of God and to uh, uh, teach the Word of God and to expect that the Word of God would increasingly be at work in our lives as a church, as families, and as individuals and according to Ephesians 4 the elders are also called to equip the saints the members of the church for the work of the ministry so we do not have a pastor-led ministry model we do not have an elder-led ministry model we have an elder-equipping saint-led member-led ministry model where you are the ones who are the ministers of the gospel in this local church you're the ministers And as members, I suppose, we elders are also ministers of the gospel. But our job, our function, is not to be the minister, but to equip the ministers for the work of ministry. Now you'll notice that our entire ministry structure from here is based on two verses of the Bible. We have Acts 1-8. That's where Jesus said to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. In Judea and Samaria, that's the south and the northern kingdom of Israel, and to the ends of the earth. And the second is Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves. That word is key. Devoted themselves. That is, they they were focused on, they were not distracted by anything else, but these four things constituted the heartbeat of that church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. So why have we decided to base our entire ministry structure on these two verses? In order to answer that question, we need to zoom out and take a look at the book of Acts. There's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And you can really divide those chapters into three groups. You have uh, chapters 1 through 4, you have chapter 5, and you have chapters 6 through 28. How might you say are they divided? Well, let's take a a closer look at it. Chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends to heaven and he promises his Holy Spirit to his church and that's when he commissions them and says you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In this chapter we also see that Matthias is chosen to replace Judas. But the whole force of this chapter is the departure of Jesus, the anticipation of the receiving The arrival of the Holy Spirit and the filling out of the leadership of the church because the apostles at this point were the elders of the church. So you see there the mission given, the the leadership established. That sets us up for Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends from heaven in what appears to be tongues of fire and he fills the believers who are in the upper room. This is the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 35. Jeremiah said, there's a day coming when the law will not be externally written on stone, but God with his own finger is going to come and write the law on your hearts. No one will have to say that you need to know the Lord because everyone will know me and I won't remember your transgressions anymore. I will forget your sins. You will be my people. I will be your God. This will be a new covenant promised the prophet jeremiah that's happening in acts chapter 2 the great day of pentecost ironic that's not ironic it's it's planned actually it's predestined predestined is the fact that the holy spirit came on pentecost because what happened on pentecost in the old testament penta means 50 50 days after passover moses went up on mount sinai and received the law from god And on the day of the festival that celebrates the receiving of the law of God, God himself comes and writes the law, not on stone, but on hearts. Peter then preaches the first post-Pentecost Christian sermon, and we're told in Acts chapter 2 that 3,000 persons were added to the church that day. And it's in Acts chapter 2 where... Luke gives us a snapshot of the curriculum of the church, starting in Acts 242. They devoted themselves. once they received the Holy Spirit, after the, the first sermon had been preached, the leadership had been established, the, the members responded to the, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the leadership of the church by devoting themselves to four things: the apostle's teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. In Acts 3, the church begins to fulfill its mission. Peter heals a lame man in the name of Jesus Christ. And Peter and John preach the gospel in the temple. You're to be my witnesses, Acts 1-8. In Jerusalem. What's the center of Jerusalem? The Temple Mount. It's the center of the world, the center of the universe. It's, it's where God has put his name. That's where the church started to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Acts 4, Peter and John are brought before The council. That is the Sanhedrin. The very same people that weeks earlier crucified Jesus. Talk about courage. Peter and John know that Jesus had been crucified by those who are in charge of the temple. What do they do? They march into the temple precincts. They preach the gospel. They're hauled before the Sanhedrin. The very same men that crucified Jesus. How would you be feeling if you were standing before these men? 50 days later. They were released, but it shook up the church. So the believers, they don't pray for deliverance. They don't run away. They pray for boldness to bear witness to Jesus Christ. And here in Acts 4, we're told that they had everything in common. This seems to be a hallmark. It's mentioned twice in these first four chapters that's the first major block in the book of acts that's where we've pulled our two verses to to decide what we are going to be and to do as a church and understand why we need to go into acts chapter five acts chapter five you'll remember at the very end of chapter four Everybody is selling their possessions and of their own free will, giving their proceeds to the elders of the church so that the, 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 the material blessings could be distributed among everyone who had a need. Acts 5, there's a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. They sell their property as well. But they keep some of the profit from the property that they sell for themselves. Which is not not a problem. There was no rule, there was no law that came down from the elders that says go and sell all that you own and give us your money. So the problem isn't that they gave only a portion of the proceeds of the sale of their property to the church. It's that they wanted to look good in the eyes of the church. And they came before the elders and before the congregation and said this is the full sum of what we got when we sold our property. And Peter says, why do you lie to God? And God struck Ananias dead. Then Sapphira came in and Peter gives her an opportunity and says, is this everything? Is this all of the proceeds? And she says, yes it is. She doesn't know that her husband had been struck dead by God. And so God strikes her dead. It's not explicit in the text, but Let me suggest something to you. The way that Luke, inspired by God, has written the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira seem to act like a new covenant Adam and Eve. Read through the first four chapters of the book of Acts and look for any sin. Look for anything less than the idyllic church. This is the church the way God would love for it to be. And then you have a husband and a wife who betray God they're struck dead and from Acts 6 through to the end of uh, chapter 28 and then through all of the the letters of the New Testament there's some problems in the church the church exists we're still God's bride we're still still the the holy temple of God We're, we're still a holy seed we're still Christ's body but we're Christ's body with a limp and from Acts 6 through to the end of the Bible in all of church history and our current experience the church is existing in a fallen world and we're not everything we're supposed to be partly because we're still wrapped in flesh we're all saints we're all holy our hearts have been made obedient but we still wrap ourselves in sinful tendencies but more than that the church is the visible church is made up of the true church and the apostate church uh, uh, there are people in every local church and i would be surprised if this is not true here though i don't know of anyone we're not everyone saved in the local church which is why i'm constantly preaching not just to new uh, to people who don't know that they're not saved or that know that they're not saved but I preach to people who think that they are saved and maybe they're not. Maybe you're not. But for all those reasons the church walks with a limp. But the implications, the reason I'm bringing this up is this. If Acts 1-4, to I'm sure that there was ev- not everything was perfect before Ananias and Sapphira but everything written about the church in Acts 1-4 to is idyllic. It's paradise. If the church could only be like that, then we would be everything that Christ wants us to be. And we would do everything that Christ wants us to do. And there are two verses in those four chapters that summarize those four chapters: Acts 1.8 and Acts 2.42. And so if we could just fulfill, and I love how God has done this for us, just do these two verses if you just fulfill these two verses, you will be pleasing in my sight. Of course, we do it in the power of the Holy Spirit and by God's grace. So the whole book of Acts is descriptive. That is, Luke's endeavoring to write history. He's just saying, this is what happened. This is this is what happened in Acts, is the volume two of the Gospel of Luke. This is a historical account of of the history. So, Acts one through twenty-eight that's descriptive. But Acts one to four, in addition to being descriptive, I would suggest to you that these four chapters are also prescriptive. Meaning, this is what we ought to be aspiring to as a church. Acts 1-8. Really, we preached on Acts 1-8 last week, so I don't want to spend much time. But this, this establishes that the local church is always to be missional in focus. You, we are all missionaries. You're a missionary. And I'm a missionary. And we don't have to go very far to be missionaries. We, each of us, are missionaries of this local church. So act like a missionary. Go, go proclaim, and when God, through your witness convert someone bring that person to be baptized so that we can teach them that's acts 1-8 you will be my witnesses whether you're going to be in barry in, in this province in this country or if god calls you somewhere else in the world you are a missionary there's no such thing as some people being missionaries and other people not being missionaries we are a missional church We're not a seeker-sensitive church. We don't pretend to try and persuade people to come in and to join with us because we have something that's attractive. We're not an attraction-based church, although I hope that we are the most attractive thing in the world if we are doing what God wants us to be. But we're not trying to be like the world to win the world. We are trying to do and to be the things that Jesus wants us to do and to be. And that is what we hope is attractive. And it is by God's Spirit and God's grace that He is going to add to our number day by day those who are being saved. So we're not a secret church, but we are an evangelizing church, and I hope increasingly so. That's Acts 1.8. Which leaves us with Acts 2.42. This is what we are calling people to. When you go out in your missionary endeavors, when you go out to proclaim the gospel, part of your witness can be you should see our church. We have the most amazing group of people who love one another, love to learn. Share their riches with one another. No one is in need. They love to eat together. How many events in the last month have we had where there's been food? And they worship. They don't perform. They worship. So the remainder of this morning, I just want to go through these four things that we are to devote ourselves to. Is there more that we could do as a church? Sure but not before we devote ourselves to these things this i believe and we elders believe is the heartbeat of the church let's take a look at them oh first sorry i missed something that i think is really important we are calling people to this church because of all those things i said and I just want to remind you of John chapter 13, verses 33 to 35, because this is really important. Our, our evangelism, our mission, our witness is not all about proclamation. It's also about saying there is something, there's, there's a group of people that you can come and be a part of. And so there's this, always this struggle, Between, well, are you an evangelist or are you a teacher? Are you worried about reaching new people? Are you worried about building up the church internally? Are you externally focused or are you internally focused? And what I want to do in the next 90 seconds is break down that false dichotomy. There's no such thing as evangelism without the inner workings of the church. And if the church is healthy, that will be your number one tool for evangelizing. The two have to go together. If you don't have a healthy church, don't bother going out and calling people to join you. We don't want to call people into something that is totally ill and sick and not working. We want to call people to a little taste of heaven. We're an embassy of heaven here. You want to know what heaven's like? You've got to come and see this. You've got to be one of us. So, so this evangelizing, this external going is directly connected to us cultivating a healthy church internally. And, and to prove it, John 13, through 35 Jesus, the night before he was crucified, said to his disciples little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You'll seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. So he's saying, you're going to have to stick around in this fallen world. I'm not taking you up to heaven right away. And while you're down there on earth, setting up embassies for heaven, I think that for me is a really helpful way of thinking of the local church, where embassies of heaven. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, by what? By the love that you have for one another, by, by just your, your sense of community among one another, as you're cultivating a healthy church among one another, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Why would anyone want to join the church if the church is just backbiting and dogmatic and uh, ripping apart and we're fighting about silly things, stupid things? Why would we want to go out and say, you got to be a part of this? It's by this love, by, by doing the things that God wants us to do. That is our witness. You are the salt of the earth. How effective is one grain of salt on a piece of steak? You won't even taste it. Salt, by definition, requires a group of grains of salt. It's a communal effort. The saltiness that we have in the world is not me by myself. There's no Lone Ranger Christians. Our saltiness is when we are together. Then we are salty. Then just... Tip over the salt shaker and season the world. You're the light of the world. How effective is one particle? I I don't know. Is it a ray? Is it a particle? Is it here? Is there? You know. One particle of light, it's so dodgy, scientists don't even know what to do with it. But you get a bunch of light. It doesn't take much. Just a, a little group. One match. Well, we saw it earlier, right? It was dark in here. We had these candles, and we had that lantern, and the place was lit up. But we do that together, we together. It's we, our corporate witness as the church is going to be the most effective means of reaching this city. In our individual efforts, as we go into our spheres of influence and we share the gospel and we proclaim, that's entirely secondary and additional our corporate witness and as we're out there individually proclaiming the gospel as we go we're always pointing back to the group you should see my church come and see come and see be a part of this you see what I'm saying so Acts 1 8 only works if Acts two forty two is working and until you get Acts two forty two working don't bother with Acts 1 8 which is why missions is the last thing that we've been giving our energy to. So what's Acts 242? Four things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Let's take a look at each one of these in order. The apostles' teaching. Now, something very interesting in these verses, just open there to Acts 242, verses 43 through 47 explain each of these four items so it's a fourfold curriculum they devoted themselves to four things now verses 43 f- through 47 is going to flesh out a little bit well what is that what is the apostles teaching uh, what is fellowship what what is the breaking of bread what is prayer And so as we go through, I'm going to point you to that. So what is the apostles' teaching? Look at verse 43. Verse 43 expands upon what they were devoting themselves to. So the apostles were teaching them in verse 43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now we quickly dismiss this, don't we? What, what is awe, wonder, and signs? We say, oh, that's supernatural. Cessation. Uh, the gifts have ceased. They're, God's not working that way anymore. You could hear the sarcasm in my voice. I just don't agree. I don't think that's what this is about. I don't think this is for them and not for us. This is prescriptive. I, I really believe that. These are prescriptive ser- uh, scriptures. And what's so supernatural in, in the sense of a gift that is no longer operative about awe, wonder, and signs. That's what flowed out. When the apostles stood up and opened the Bible, which was our Old Testament only, they didn't have anything else, and they preached from the Old Testament, and they said, this is the gospel. Look at Jesus Christ. Understand His cross. Put into perspective from these Old Testament scriptures what God has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. The response of the people was awe. They were filled with awe. That is awesome. When you see God working in history and fulfilling promises, fulfilling pictures and types and shadows, seeing the culmination of of a very long story of God with humanity, they were filled with awe, and they could... I, I can imagine they said, this is amazing that we are alive to behold the fulfillment of these Scriptures. And they were filled with wonder. Meaning they didn't understand it all. I don't understand. How could this be? How could this? That- wow! They came to the end of their understanding and they began to worship with wonder. How could God do such an amazing thing? And what are these Signs. I think more than anything, these signs might have been a church properly responding to the Word of God and the proclamation of the Gospel. All of a sudden, the church started to look like the church. And that was the proof positive that this was true. The Holy Spirit was filling them as the apostles were teaching them. And as they were filled with awe in God's plan of redemption, as they they came to the end of their understanding... And they wondered and wanted to know more their lives began to look different and they became the very sign of god for a dead and dying world can't we do that can't we be filled with awe and wonder can't we be god's sign to a dead and dying world what is our disposition toward the teaching of god's word Are we filled with awe what a God what a God that he planned it from the beginning this way that we've been invited into God's story you know that the Bible is not some story outside of us when we proclaim the word of God when we receive the word of God when we live the word of God we become a part of the story of God's redemption might we be filled with a renewed wonder you know one of the most challenging things for a preacher just anecdotally is Christmas Eve, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Because how do we renew our wonder in these histories that we've told over and over again? Yes, Jesus died for our sins, was buried on the third day he was raised. What are you doing after church? You want to go dig a hole somewhere or something? Like we just talk about Like, it's just so normal. But would that be our prayer every time we come to hear the teaching of God's Word? Oh, God, I know I've heard this before, but would you renew my wonder? Remind me that I don't have it all figured out. There's more to learn, there's more to explore, there's more to be at awe of. That you are more, you're you're greater, you're bigger, and your gospel is deeper than I currently am aware of. Take me deeper. That's, that's what they devoted themselves to. Do our lives bear the marks, the signs of sanctification? Let me venture and evaluation to these questions i think for the most part we we do have awe and wonder over god's word this church loves god's word it's a delight to preach the word to this church because i get the sense that you're hungry for it that you want it You, you come here and you tell me what god has to say I love that about our church. And I I look at, we we offer opportunities to be instructed in God's word. We're we're not a very big church. We have 25 men at Frontline. We have 22 women in our Women of Wisdom. We had 12 senior high at at Peter and Grace Brown's house on Friday night. We have teachers that are devoting themselves to instructing our children. We share the load in that. We're going to have our junior high, and I know that there are, there are youth from all around the city that love to come to hear how they can share their faith and be confident in their faith. We've got men and women and youth and children, I think, who love the Word of God. Praise God. Now let us pray for an everlasting awe, a deeper wonder, and ever moving sanctification because we're not done we're not done what do our teaching ministries look like well we have men's teaching I'm the steward of that I as the lead pastor am charged alongside the elders to make sure that our men are learning the word of God we have women's teaching and I'm the steward of that as the lead teaching pastor of this church I've been charged alongside the elders to make sure that we are teaching our women the word of God and currently we are equipping our women to teach more women the word of God we have youth which is divided into junior and senior high Robin Twyla Stevenson are are our stewards Scott Hanson Peter and Grace Brown work with them very closely And we teach our children every Sunday because we believe in age-appropriate discipleship. And Julia Bauman is our steward of children's teaching. So we are making every effort to devote ourselves to the apostle teaching. Let's continue. The second thing that the early church devoted themselves to was the fellowship. What is fellowship? Some churches have a fellowship hall, and what they mean by that is coffee. And maybe some missionary stories, which is always good. But what does the Bible say about fellowship? Take a look at verses 44 through 45. This is biblical fellowship. All who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and their belongings and they were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's fellowship. Notice that there's three parts to fellowship. They had all things in common. They were selling their extra possessions and they were distributing the proceeds once they did sell their extra possessions. This is a challenge for us in the West. This is a challenge because like it or not, we're part of a culture that says the more the better. Build up your resources in this world bigger and better, bigger and better, more and more. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say bigger and better, bigger and better, more and more. The Bible says once the Holy Spirit got a hold of these believers, 3,000 all at once, the impulse, this is the impulse, the impulse that the Holy Spirit produced in them was I don't need this, and I don't need more, and I could do with less. Oh, this indicts us, doesn't it? Because in our own way, we all are hosting our our own micro-episode of hoarders. Although, perhaps we wouldn't make it on that TV show because maybe it's not that bad. But we do hoard things, don't we? We don't need all that we have and we aspire to more. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, godliness combined with contentment is good. Or contentment combined with godliness is good. He says, look, I was born into the world with nothing, and I'm going to leave the world with nothing. Not even clothing. I was born with no clothing. I'm not going to need clothing when I, get, when I leave. So between my entry and my exit in this world, if I have food and clothing, I'll be content with this. If you take that scripture and put it up in front of you as a mirror, is that you? I came in with nothing, I'm leaving with nothing. If I have food and clothing in between, I'm content with that. Because when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of people, their impulse is, let's fellowship. What is that? I don't need all of that I have. I guess I could sell some things. And I would still be very content. So was the early church communist? no what's the difference well aside from the atheism of communism aside from that why is the early church not communist because I've looked and I cannot find a decree coming down from God through the apostles to be carried on by the elders where anyone can be bound to the exhortation sell and give communism Forces it. Communism says you have no choice. It's the law. If you don't, we'll kill you. That's not, that's not what's going on here. Private property is alive and well. It was all the free impulse of people who were filled with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, as a preacher, I, I, I cannot and I will not demand anyone sell anything. However, I will and I must if I'm to fulfill my mandate before God, point out the fact that spirit filled people don't need that much. And what would be wonderful for us individually as families and as a church if by God's grace and by the prompting and the leading of the Holy Spirit of our own free will, we begin to say not more and more bigger and better, but smaller, less, sufficient. And we find our contentment not in the things of this world, but in the great treasure that is Christ. Do you see the difference there? Very crucial that you understand how we're going to approach this. So the early church was not communist, but it was exceedingly charitable. It mattered to them that no one among their number had any need at all. I'm not talking about like, well, some some needs are unavoidable. No need. Now we have to define need. What's need, biblically, food and clothing? And a shelter, but you don't need to own a house. That's not a biblical promise. That's the Canadian dream. Not, that's not a biblical dream. That's, that's not necessary. It's not sinful, but it's not necessary. But what God says is necessary is food and clothing. It mattered to the early church, if we get beyond need, it mattered that the richest among them were not too much richer than the poorest among them. So again, not communism, but it mattered to them. It it struck the conscience of the rich that they were too rich in comparison to the poor who worshiped the same God in the same fellowship. And so they began to divest themselves of some of their extra materialism. Not because they had to, but because they wanted to. That's the key part. They wanted to. Because they no longer cared so much about what they owned. They cared about the Lord Jesus Christ. They cared about the church. They cared about the witness of the church. And it doesn't do much for the world to see great disparity in the church. If there are great uh, people of great riches and people of great poverty in the church and we go out to the world and say we've got something good going on here and the world says well what's the difference? I see very rich and I see very poor. How great would it be if they saw, wow, they don't even seem to care about material possessions. You see, I want us, I want myself, just, I'm preaching to myself. I want us to catch a vision for this. How glorious life would be If we didn't have materialism choking us, I think we'd be much more contented. We'd have a greater life. We would enjoy one another more. We would enjoy life more. So what is fellowship? Fellowship, if I could put it in different words, is this. What's mine is yours. What's mine is yours. See, there's two ways of using your material. If you do have something and you don't sell it, at the very least, hold it in your open hands for everyone in the church to use. We need some people with big houses, by the way, just to balance what I've said. We need it We need a few. We don't need everyone to have a big house, but it is nice to gather at people's houses, isn't it? And if we're going to fit, we need a yard. We need some people to be able to say, you know what, I'm going to buy the pig this time. Fatted calf. Joseph's done that before. I'll provide the food. We need, so there's several ways around this, but fellowship says what's mine is yours. And the disparity shrinks. And, And our life is not about stuff. Our life is about the Lord Jesus Christ and one another. So how are we doing with regard to fellowship? Are we in the habit of selling our property in order to distribute the proceeds to those in need in the church. I want you to notice that we don't sell our stuff and give it to the unbelieving world. We pool our resources in the church for one another, and then we call anyone in the world into our fellowship to share. Are we quick to lend our possessions for use in the church? Use our houses, our yards? Are we ready to volunteer our time to help one another in need? Well, let me venture an evaluation on this. I believe fellowship is a massive strength of this church. You like how I emphasize massive. This is a huge strength of ours. Like when Angie and I saw you from a distance six years ago, we said, wow, that, that church, there's something about that church. And then three years later, by God's providential kindness to us, we were called to, to become a part of this church. And immediately we felt the fellowship of the saints among you. I, I remember when we moved in, like with one hour, all my socks were in their drawer, my books were on their shelves, our cups were in the, in the, in the cupboard, and, and we, we were having supper with you. We didn't even have to make supper. Everything was moved and unpacked and supper was on our table in our house an hour after we landed. That's amazing. That's that's downright Mennonite of us. (laughs) So this is a strength of ours. And yet, in spite of this being a strength, it, it seems there's a certain kind of fellowship that we are inclined toward. And there's another part of fellowship that we're not so good at. For more than two years, we've been really struggling financially as a church. Now, this is not something we normally speak about outside of members' meetings. But, bec- and the reason why, the finances is the responsibility of the members. If you're not a member here, listen in for a minute, but this is, this is not directed toward you. This is why we don't pass a plate. You may have noticed that. We're not looking for anyone's money, but when you become a member here, you've you've committed to fellowship. So I'm going to speak to the members from the pulpit because the text requires it for a full application, but this is not our practice to talk about money outside of the membership. But we've been struggling for two years. We've been in a spending freeze for 17 or 18 months. So forget about selling houses and vehicles and excess material possessions. My question is, would we be struggling if every member household gave 10% of their take-home pay to operate the ministry of this church? I don't know because I'm not a mathematician, but I tend to think not. I tend to think that we have enough resources But the way we've structured our lives, fellowship in that sense is not a priority to us. We'll give our time. We'll share. I I think we're really good at sharing our possessions. But what about financing the work of ministry? The budgets that we as members are passing, we're not financing. Now, having said that, we've turned a major corner this year. We've made budget, I believe, every month. And, I don't know the stats, but we've asked for 20000 additional dollars, and why don't you come to the members meeting, if you're a member, on Wednesday, and we'll find out how much of that $20,000 we have collected. And once we fill up that emergency fund to 20000 the spending freeze will be over, and we can get, get back into ministry as normal. But I bring this up here because fellowship requires us to all be working toward giving 10% of our take-home pay, which means you're going to have to change your priorities in your household budget in order to make that happen. So, having said that last part, don't forget the way I said the word massive earlier. Fellowship, in one sense, is a huge strength of ours. We're very good at it, and in other senses, we, we have room to grow. But praise be to God, we are growing, and this has been, overall, a fairly good financial year for us. So our fellowship ministries, with this in mind, we have four fellowship ministries in the church, finances, finances, So we pool our resources to do the work of the ministry. Facility, we not only have to pay for this facility together, but we have to take care of it. So that includes signing up to clean the church, fixing the church. Care team, so this uh, this has to do with making sure that there's no one in need in our church. And administration, that is helping to mobilize our human resources so that we're functioning well. And when we do all four of these things, we are fellowshipping with one another. So the steward of our finances is Lyndon Heho, Steward of our facility is Tom Long. The steward of our care ministry is Wayne and Lori Brown. And our administration steward is Janet Surrett. Third thing that the church devoted themselves to was the breaking of bread. Acts 2.46. Take a look at this. Day by day. Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Breaking bread. What does it mean to break bread? Well, they did it day by day. They attended the temple together. They broke bread in their homes, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So what does it mean to break bread? Is breaking bread the Lord's Supper? Yes. Every time they ate together, I I think, they also remembered the Lord's death. I I think that it would be a good thing to get in the habit when you break bread in your family, when you break bread with other people in the family. You don't have to do a full communion service, but just remember that Jesus died for your sins and was raised on the third day. But it also included table fellowship. And we're told here that it included in-house hospitality. So they, they broke bread when they gathered at church when they went to the temple. They broke bread day by day in their own homes, so it means that they were in the habit of inviting one another over. You know, I go back and forward on on this idea. You spend so much time with Christians that you don't have any non-Christian friends, therefore you're not a good witness in the world. You've heard that before. I don't know that I agree with that. Some days I do and some days I don't. Because the emphasis, I think, is that our primary social group in life ought to be coming from this church. Your best friends in the world should be in this church. And then maybe you have time for one or two outside people, but our our mission has to be more intentional, more focused. But hang out with people in the church. We're brothers, we're sisters, we're part of one family under Christ. And so we need to be having one another into our homes. Do we break bread together in these ways? Do we do this day by day? are we in the habit of inviting people into our homes do we pause every time we eat to receive our food with glad and generous hearts well let me venture an evaluation on this again i would say this is the strength of our church you you might come to see that i think we have a pretty good church this is the strength of our church so this is a priority for us that we eat together uh, we 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 endeavor that one-fifth of what we do is eating together. We see that as a, a spiritual aspect to life in the church. We share food and, and coffee every Sunday when we get together. We, we, we fellowship at least once a, once a month as a church, sometimes more. And then we are encouraging one another always to have people from the church into our homes. I want to recognize that this is not as easy for some as for others. Some people are naturally extroverted, naturally hospitable. Others, it's not as easy. It's, it's more of a challenge. and I don't want to minimize the, some of the challenges that, that some of us might feel in this exhortation to hang out with one another, to have people into our homes. That's, that's true nevertheless, it's something that we all must be pursuing, not uh, in equal measure. Some people are more gifted, more wired to this, but every one of us must be seeking to break bread with others. So, in-home hospitality, having said that, is probably lopsided. Probably some of us are having more people in our homes than others. And I would say that probably some of us are getting more invitation than others. And that's not Okay. It's not okay for some people to never or rarely get invited. And so, as much as it's okay to have people in the church that you're closer to and to spend more time with them, every one of us must think who might not be getting invited out as much, or who have I not had in my home as much? And make an effort to expand our social circles. It's not okay for anyone to be lonely in this church. Our breaking bread ministries, we have one of them, and that's hospitality. And hospitality, they help us for our corporate breaking bread events, which includes every Sunday morning potlucks and other events. But it's not the hospitality stewards that are supposed to do all the work. Matt and Justina Westerink are our new hospitality stewards, and they are going to be assembling teams of people so that every one of us, in one way or another, will be involved in our hospitality ministry. Come to our last one, prayer and worship. Verse 47a, what does it mean to pray? Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. Praising God is fairly easy. So if we're praying, we're worshiping, we're singing, we're, we're praising. We praise through music. It's part of prayer. And we have favor with all the people. What does it mean to have favor with all the people? This is tricky. And I'm not entirely sure. But this is what I think that it means. I think that what it means is that the church loved to worship together. That when all 3,000 people gathered together or they subdivided, they had the favor of all the people when they praised God together. There was a general favor toward praising God together. The church loved to worship, which mean, means there were no worship wars. There was not a lot of infighting about preferences. There wasn't like, I would do it this way. I'm not going to participate because it's not the way I would do it. I don't like that song. I don't like that instrument. I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't, I don't think they had that. They were just filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were just, let's worship God. They had that exuberance of youth in them. And the, everyone was favorably inclined toward worship. I think it probably also means that as there are different nations coming together, right, we're told, 3,000 people added to the number, not all sp- from the same part of the world. I imagine that they tried to include a variety of preferences, a, a variety of languages, a variety of approaches to worship, so that they did have the favor of all the people. So it works both ways. We don't need to conform everyone to our way of doing it, but we also... Uh, meaning that we need to offer a variety, but we also need to be okay when the worship's not exactly how we would do it. Does our prayer and praise look like this? Do we look forward to gathering to worship God together? Is it the highlight of our week? This is supposed to be the highlight of our week. There should never be a time when we just can't wait for church to be over so we can go and do something less important. I love, John MacArthur uh, one time said, uh, and their worship had gone long, and he got up late to preach. He says, don't worry. I'll get this over with quickly so you can go home and do nothing. (laughs) Like, this is the highlight, that one day in seven to do this. Is it the highlight of our week? Does our worship have the favor of all the people? Meaning, are we fighting about worship? Let me venture an evaluation on this one. I'm glad to say that I have not experienced any Syriac worship wars since becoming the pastor of this church. I've heard rumblings. But everyone is gracious enough thus far to not allow their rumblings to become all-out warfare. And for that, I'm very grateful. Very, very grateful. I'd also like to say that we are a singing church. We sing. Some of us better than others, but we sing. That's very good. Now we could, if I could say, suggest where we might grow, we could grow in our expression of corporate prayer. I don't know that we're yet a church that enjoys and prioritizes the coming together for corporate prayer. And this has to start with the elders. This has to start with the pastor and the pastors. And this is something that we, as elders have discussed. We're, it's on our radar. We are aware of this. Um, and so be in prayer for us as we seek to figure out how can we cultivate a more vibrant corporate prayer life in the church. We have attempted to do prayer for all people in the service. We do attempt to do prayer after. We very rarely call you together for a prayer meeting. I think we do include prayer in everything that we do, so that part we're we're fairly good at. But as far as just coming together to pray, a little weak. I'm not blaming anyone except for myself and the elders. But as we, the leaders and shepherds of this church, begin to try to motivate us to gather for corporate prayer more, you could really make it a lot easier if you showed up, if you participated if you said you know what this is not exactly what I want to do tonight but I'd like to see what I'm missing out on and I believe that our, our enjoyment of the Lord and the fruitfulness of our witness is directly related to our prayer life as a people not just individually and not just peppered and seasoned throughout what we do but saying you know what the main thing that we're doing now is prayer so we got some work to do on that our worship ministries we have three of them we have our music ministry our steward is blair hansen we have our technology steward who worked for us today peter brown and our sunday administration steward is jenny hawkins and our sunday administration is probably the least obvious of what does that ministry team do Everything that happens on Sunday, including greeters, newcomers, communion, decorating, et cetera, et cetera, um, whatever is done, rather than the elders having to worry about those details, we just pass it on to our Sunday administration team. I show up and I preach. That's it. So how do we know that these four aspects of church life are a part of the mission of the church? Take a look at the end of verse 47. Verse 47. Because they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and the prayers, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Do you want to see people day by day being saved? Not only do we have to go proclaim and baptize and teach, we need to devote ourselves to these things. And if we devote ourselves to these things, we have a church worth calling people to We will be salt and light. We will be attractive to the world. God will add to our number day by day those who are being saved. Now that you've seen and heard our ministry structure, a final exhortation to you is to ask, where are you plugged in? We want and we require 100% of our church members to be making an active contribution to these things. We would like everyone to have a primary ministry and some people to have a secondary ministry, but very few, if any, having a, a tertiary ministry. Focus on something. We're, we're at a size now where you can do something that you love to do. Maybe we need to pull you to do an additional thing. If you're not plugged in, find a steward, talk to them, and begin to make a contribution to this church in motion. I hope you know how much I love this church. I love you. I love this church. I've never been a part of anything like this. I think we're just getting started. So let's keep going. Let's build on the momentum that God has gifted to us and let us all work in the mission and motion of this church to the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. Would you pray with me? Oh God, I thank you for this church. I pray that you would continue to help us to grow up into Christ, who is the head, that we might enjoy the fullness of life in Christ and be a powerful witness for him in our world. I pray these things depending entirely on your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.